Hello and welcome to episode 128 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. I'm your host David, and with me the NCP crew, Richard. Hello. Luke. Luke? Yeah, hi. <laughs> Wait, wake up Luke. <laughs> what were you looking at that was so entrancing? Nothing. I just thought, you know, the audience might enjoy a nice long pause. No, know, pauses up, are bad for radio. Build up, yeah, but this isn't quite radio. <laughs> <laughs> this is radio. Get in, man. And Crystal. Hello. <laughs> hey. And for this episode, we also have a very special guest, Mr. Brian Rathbone. Hello! <laughs> Hello! Uh, so right. he's, he's already getting into the spirit it, of things. He's already part of the crew. Uh, so, uh, uh, Brian, I, I follow Brian on uh, Twitter. I, I don't understand how you got enough time to do the work that you the, the writing that you do over the amount of Twittering you do. But uh, it's, it's very, really funny stuff, and uh, we've communicated a few times on Twitter. And, and uh, I thought I would get Brian on uh, as a... Um, as a published author, so Brian actually writes uh, a series a series of novels and uh, has them has has them published and uh, uh, specifically the God's Land series. And uh, what I thought was because we we talk a, bit, a lot about books and, and about the writing process and all that sort of stuff, and we're all writers to various degrees. I just thought it would be a really cool opportunity to speak to an actual author, an actual published <laughs> author, and sort of get his views on, on you know, what he does and how he does it and that sort of stuff. And thankfully, he said yes. I didn't feel sad. I'm very much happy to be here. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And, uh, <laughs> it's always fun getting to talk with folks that I interact with on Twitter because that's such an interesting keyhole on in my life. Yeah, we'll talk, we'll talk a bit about your Twitter use because <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really important tool for you. So it's uh, I think it's... I think you're one of the one of the few people I know that uh, use it effectively, not not just for you know, it's, hey, I'm eating spaghetti for dinner. It's you actually <laughs> you actually use it as as a tool to sort of reach out to your fans and stuff. So I think it's really really cool. We need to know when people are eating spaghetti. Yeah, we need to know when people what are people are eating and when. <laughs> it's really important. With Instagram, you can have pictures as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and that's, and that's the most important. <laughs> what what did people do in the days before Twitter and Instagram? Did they just photograph their meals and run around to their friends' places once they'd had the films processed. <laughs> once, they, once they had them processed. Remember the good old days? Remember the good old days? So let's uh, move on to some news. I've got a couple of just sort of news announcements and a, a very important South plug, so we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So uh, news number one, uh, my film of the year, film for film favourite film for 2014, uh, The Babadook. Is, has tied as best film at the recent Actor Awards. I like to think it's only because they listened to your review. That's right. <laughs> That's because I, I championed this film like a somebody <laughs> almost getting paid for it. It was almost like I was getting paid. No, it was, it was, took a while. Took a while for you to find was, the uh, metaphor. They didn't. I was, didn't yeah, I was about to. I was about to swear. <laughs> so I was like, well, I can't do that. Um, so uh, so Actor stands for. Um, Australian Academy of Cinematic and Television Arts. Yeah, so it's basically the the replacement of the at the AFI. So it's it's a it's a big achievement, and uh, it's interesting that a film that got basically no attention in Australia, except for me, of course, um, and <laughs> but it was beloved overseas as uh, as tied for best film, which I thought was good. So congrats to the Babadook. I just like say the Babadook. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> as good as Babaganish. <laughs> it's, it's almost as good. It's not quite, and it's easy to say. <laughs> Uh, the other news item got, uh, got is it's really not that big a deal in terms of news, but uh, I just thought it was pretty hilarious. I thought I'd mention it. Uh, the German government is going to recreate Battlestar Galactica, as in the rebooted version, in, in like a live-action RPG scenario <laughs> in an effort to teach certain people of the, of the, of the German government uh, all about ethics and, and what to do in sort of instead of tense political situations. 
which, with, I, which I think is just brilliant. So, with Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> yeah, this is right. So this, I would have gone with Captain Picard. I know, this, I've, got some, I've got some details for you. So the, the exercise is called Project Exodus. And what it does is they're going to lock up 80 uh, aspiring diplomats, politicians, and military leaders aboard a retired naval destroyer and then, and then give them a fictional scenario that they're on a, a Galactica spaceship called the Hesperius, which is a refugee ship seeking a new home after its world has been destroyed in a brutal war with, a mach- with machines disguised as humans, which is Battles like Arctica. Um, the ship then picks up an escape pod, which, which starts the, the machinations. See, I can see... But I can see for, for see problems already. I mean, you know... <laughs> the, by my, in my natural instinct is just to automatically assume that the people around me are not, in fact, human at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it's, but that's the thing. So, so they then have to sort of then... They're basically informed that not all of them are actually who they say they are, and they could, in fact, be Cylons. And so they have to go from there. I, I, just, I think it's fascinating. Is... Apparently it's been done before. When, when we're in researching this, actually it has been done before by the Swedish government. So I, and I didn't know anything do, about it. Do, do the Swedish and German governments just have, like, a massive budget surplus that allows them to use tax dollars on these totally bizarre so. ideas? My question, though, my question, though, is this. With the history that, German, that Germany has had over the past hundred years, they needed to go to the fictional realm of space travel? <laughs> well, I guess it's a little a, a sort of less in your face, I, I suppose. I suppose. But I just, I just think this is... I think this is Brit, and uh, I want Melbourne to do it. <laughs> and I want to be involved. <laughs> you want to be a dumb <laughs> to be in there <laughs> that's right get scrapped the east west link put money into this instead <laughs> exactly i just think that's cool it's bizarre it is bizarre <laughs> uh so the last uh, the last piece of pieces of news we got is uh, like i said sort of the self promo stuff um we in our previous episode we had our contest of champions it's in it's our revamped contest of champions the 2.0 um and so for brian's benefit it's a contest of champions is uh, where we pit two fictional characters against each other in sort of that classic sort of nerd conversation, who would win out of these people. Um, and uh, with the revamped version of it is we've now actually got like a set ladder, and uh, so we'll actually have, you know, like an, an elimination round sort of thing, and it'll you know eventually get to a to a winner. And uh, the last episode, I didn't really plan it this way, but the the, the last episode uh, was X-23 versus Robin, uh, the, specifically the Damian Wayne Robin, and uh, it was a... It was basically a draw. It was a tie, and uh, we couldn't write, cr- figure out how to sort of sort of finish it off. So what we did is we reached out to our um, Facebook, you know, Facebook followers and you know listeners and stuff like that, and said, "Hey, well, you know, you decide. So vote for who you think should win, and we'll tally up the votes, and we'll see who won." So the, my only disclaimer is that in the in that episode, I did say that we would I would reveal the winner in episode one twenty nine, uh, but the votes have petered off now, and sort of interest has sort of has sort of dropped down. Uh, online, so I think uh, the best the best thing to, moving forward is to announce the winner now, uh, mainly because I'm really excited and want to announce the winner, um, and then uh, and then sort of move on to, uh, to the well next for one. Me, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so yeah, so I've, I've tell it, the, the response was magnificent. I just want to say just a huge thank you to everybody who got involved. Um, it's uh, mainly on Twitter. We uh, silhouette shared it on her page as well, and. And uh, and basically the response was 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 awesome, it was far more than I thought it was going to be. Um, and as a result of that, we also got uh, quite a few likes on our Facebook page. So um, I think with uh, 20, 28, 28 new likes in you know in that week alone, which I thought was just was magnificent. So thank you very much to everybody who got involved. So so the winner is X twenty three versus Robin. Actually, wait before we do it, well, who what do you guys reckon? X twenty three versus Robin. 
If I, okay. It, okay. Just be quick. Robin. <laughs> Damien Wayne. So two for Damien. Two so he more still for Damien. Hasn't won. Even with those two, he doesn't win. I already no, chose Damien. You already chose yours. Brian, what do you reckon? X23 versus Damien. I'm just going to be contrary and say X23. Okay, cool. Typical. That'd be right. <laughs> That'd be right. That's it. Cancelling. Well, even, even with those extra votes, the, the victor is in fact X twenty three. So she she almost doubled uh, poor Damien. With this, and uh, I do actually do have to mention that uh, there was an honorary vote for Gambit, uh, even, though, even though Gambit wasn't involved. <laughs> Someone said Gambit, which I thought was hilarious. Uh, actually, I'm now spewing that Gambit is not involved in the in the competition. But uh, yeah, so X23 <laughs> is uh, is the victor. So uh, congratulations. So I'm, obviously, I'm pleased with that because that was my pick. Well, put X23's plaque in the uh, next round winner section. Yeah. So we'll, so we'll reveal the on Facebook and on the website. We'll chuck up uh, Crystal's uh, very well designed ladder, and uh, with X23 as the victor. Um, and the next round, so the, we've, as we announced last round, uh, the next round is Deathstroke, uh, as in not the new 52 version of Deathstroke, um, <laughs> the, the original cool version, versus Deadpool. Um, so Deathstroke versus Deadpool. So basically what I want you guys to do is uh, throw in your votes for Deathstroke versus Deadpool, and we'll incorporate that into the, into the, uh, the actual fight on the day. So very quickly, Deathstroke versus Deadpool. Deathstroke. Deathstroke should win. Deadpool will Deadpool win. will win because he's more popular. I need to do some research. All I know is they both kind of look like Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. And Brian, what do you reckon? Based on my experience at Dragon Con, with the number of Deadpool that I saw, I, I gotta go with Deadpool. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's, it's just it's just too right, popular so, not so, to Chris, win. Could you just make sure you mark those down? So they had uh, two Deathstrokes <laughs> and one Deadpool, <laughs> and you're abstain. I just feel like I've reached a whole new level of nerddom just in the last five minutes. <laughs> yeah, so get your get your votes in uh, for Deathstroke versus Deadpool. I think it uh, it'll be a lot of fun. All right, so that's uh, that's it for the news, uh, and so let's move on to our roundtable discussion with our special guest Brian. Yay! As I was as I was saying before we started recording, Brian. So basically, the reason the reason I got uh, got you on was is because of you know our interaction on Twitter and stuff like that, but and also just. Because um, I really, I'm very interested to know uh, about sort of yourself and your work and why you do what you do and you know that sort of stuff in the process. So, so we'll start off with: uh, Can you please introduce yourself and your body of work and uh, and what sort of inspired you to do that? Absolutely. Uh, well, again, thank you for having me on. Hi, everybody. Uh, my <laughs> name is Brian Rathbone. I'm the author of the World of Godland Fantasy series. And, uh, you know, in the intro, uh, you did mention, you know, me being a published author. It's such a funny thing, um, the, the meanings around words and the way that people view the, them these days in, in the world of self-publishing and vanity publishing and traditional publishing. You know, I do want to say that uh, I'm probably a, a somewhat rare item. I'm, I'm more rare than the published author that's in the traditional world is that I'm the successful self-publisher. Uh, I'm a full-time self-published author uh, who actually got the interest of um, traditional publishing and, and agents through my self-publishing success. So I've been very fortunate that way, and, and uh, um, I do look forward to working with uh, the big six publishers and actually writing something specifically for uh, traditional publication but I will more than likely, uh, unless somebody makes me an offer I can't refuse, keep the Godsland series uh, as an indie series. And uh, it's been really wonderful to go from uh, a 
kind of a complete failure at the start of my writing career in, in 2007 and really kind of fallen on my face to have reached the point now where, you know, I, I've built an audience and, and I'm selling books and I've got people looking forward to my next book. And that's probably the biggest thing for me is to know that there's folks out there waiting for that next book. It, uh, it makes me really happy and it inspires me to write. In what, in what way did you, did you think you were a failure at the beginning, though? Well, I decided uh, that, you know, I, I think I just had unrealistic unrealistic expectations coming in, that uh, I decided I was going to write a full trilogy, work with a professional editor, have a fully edited product, uh, and take that to literary agents, uh, and I was kind of expecting to get, you know, kind of a, a, a open arms welcome in the fact that, wow, you know, you've got really a full product here, everything's clean, it doesn't need a great deal of work, and uh, I probably overestimated how prepared I was to get into the industry. Right. So initially, I just got rejection notices from agents. I didn't really know why. I didn't get a lot of feedback. And I really had to do some soul searching to kind of look at why that was. And, and you know, it was in 2007, 2008. It was not the best financial time. It was not the best time for publishers and uh, for folks to take a lot of risk. Gotcha. And I didn't have my Twitter following then, and I didn't have... A social media presence, and I really didn't have anybody clamoring for my next book. So in the end, I kind of ended up realizing that for a big publisher, I was probably a bad business deal. Right. So, given given that, what actually? How did you go about um, self publishing? What was the the process to actually, you know, obviously reject reject the sort of traditional way of publishing? How did you then go about basically getting into self-publishing and how did that then sort of build up this following that you have now? Well, it's a pretty interesting story. I, I did it wrong first. Uh, <laughs> I was, was going ahead and starting my own company, uh, White Wolf Press LLC, you know, really structuring it uh, so that I would have, you know, a, a a real publishing entity, even though the initial intention was only to publish my work. I, I kind of had it in the back of my mind that if I did well, I would publish for others. Uh, that has come to pass, so it is a, a real royalty-paying publishing house, and it publishes my work, so it kind of does self-publishing and traditional publishing, which is an interesting mix. Nice. What I did first, though, was ran a print run, a traditional print run that I paid for the layout, I paid for... Uh, the print run and what I learned after the print run was you know really I had no distribution I had no way to actually get my books into bookstores uh, bookstores weren't very interested in working with me except maybe an indie bookstore here or there on a one-off basis and it took me quite a while to sell that thousand copies that I printed um, and I invested probably eight or nine thousand dollars to get that print run done I made my money back uh, I ended up using a lot of those copies as promotional copies because I did some things wrong in the packaging. Right. As far as three books in one for $20 is a bad entry price point for a new author. Yeah, you want to be able to give people a chance to check out your work with a lot less risk. And, and that's what I learned from ebooks. Okay. Uh, okay. When Moby Pocket became popular, I had success on Moby Pocket, and Amazon bought them to create the Kindle. And I took what I learned from Moby Pocket, started applying it to Kindle, and everything really kind of changed from there. So the um, the first the first book in the series, uh, like the, your very first uh, book, is of God's Land is is free, and I think also the second one as well, maybe. That's correct. 
Yeah, and uh, available on uh, Kindle, which we'll have the link to obviously in the in the show notes. Um, and then and then the third book is is purchasable. Yes. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. I, 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 it's, an also, it's a very interesting sort of business model, sort of sort of get you to sort of get you hooked in and then go from there for the rest of the series. That really is the model uh, in a nutshell. Um, I found it was far easier to market free content. Uh, to essentially use the content itself as the marketing tool rather than spending a lot of money on AdWords and targeted advertising and these other things to advertise uh, paid content, I can find ways to market that free content where I'm maybe paying a few cents per download to introduce my work to somebody without them taking a risk. And if they like it, then there's a really good chance that they'll go ahead and grab that next book. Uh, to be completely frank and honest, the first two books are not the best books in the series. The first book has some weaknesses that I'll probably go back and address in a 10th anniversary second edition this Ooh, year. nuts. So, you know, it was the first book I wrote in 2005. Uh, I love the story. I think from a mechanical writing standpoint, I've gotten better. Uh, and from a self-editing standpoint, with the help of my editor, Andrea Howe at Blue Falcon Editing, uh, she's taught me a lot about how to improve my prose. Uh, you know, the ideas were always there. And really, when I've gone back and edited some of these things uh, on lessons I've learned in the past year, the story doesn't change. It's just the way that the sentences are structured becomes easier to read and it flows better. And I'm looking forward to taking the opportunity to sure up some weaknesses on those first two. Uh, but I find that once people get into the second book, the writing does improve uh, to have a reasonable entry point for that third point at two ninety, uh, third book at two ninety nine. It's really not that much to ask. Uh, yeah. That book's one of the stronger ones. And if I can get folks into the second series, those I took lessons from the reviews on the first three books, and I really applied that in the second trilogy and then really applied to what I learned from that in the third trilogy. And I feel like I've, I've grown a lot over the past 10 years when it comes to what my fingers do on the keyboard. Brian, I've got two more questions about the industry itself before I barrage you with questions about your creative process. Um, <laughs> first question would be, is it, um, is it becoming increasingly important for authors to become a lot more self-reliant and a lot more self-aware about how they um, uh, put themselves forward into the public consciousness um, these uh, these days, rather than having to go to creative, uh, sorry, to go to publishing houses and expecting the publishing houses doing it, guys, authors like Matthew Riley and I can't remember his name, the guy who wrote Dust, yeah, um, took similar parts. So, is it, is it becoming important for authors, for aspiring authors, to actually have to do that first to get their foot in the door? Unless you're already famous, it is absolutely critical. If if you're famous for something, chances are you can sell a lot of books. Mm -hmm. just on the fact that you already have that thing. But as a new author, whether you're traditionally published or self-published, much of the marketing, promotion, and visibility falls to the author. And so, yes, I, I would say it, it's not important. It is absolutely critical to the success of the author. Uh, in traditional publishing, you've got a six-week window that you've got to perform or get pulled. And that's one of the reasons I'm almost glad I didn't get a traditional book deal right off the bat because I wasn't ready yet. Right. When it happens now, I'll be ready to get those sales in that first six weeks so that bookstores won't return all the books 
ask for their money back and have the whole thing end up upside down, which is really bad for your publishing career. So in some ways, I'm kind of glad I went the way I did because it allowed me to get better and be better prepared for when I stick my neck out. And really, I think traditional publishing is riskier in some ways than self-publishing. It should authors then be prepared uh, to really put in the heart if they are passionate about this and have you know, not just think of, their, think of their career then as a fly-on-the-wall sidetrack to ordinary life, but actually be prepared to really put in the hard yards to actually sell themselves as well? Yes. Uh, I think the difference between successful authors today and unsuccessful authors has a lot to do with their... Really, the two major challenges are visibility and discoverability. If nobody knows your book exists, they definitely will not buy it. (laughs) Which really is what it comes down to. And then if they do know what it is, they've got to be compelled to buy it against authors they already know and love. Mm, Right. So you have to provide value. You have to create a unique branding, you know, position. All of these things are important, and many writers today will tell you, well, that takes all of my writing time. So those who can figure out how to balance the two really are those who are, are winning at this, is the way I kind of look at it. That, you, know, you have to be able to have time for both. If you do all writing and you don't have somebody getting that word out, uh, you can't really rely on the publisher to, to put out that kind of money unless they're really seeing big returns mm-hmm. or you've got some avenue that people are just going to swarm to your books. Some people are just that good. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't want to take anything away from, from traditionally published authors who put out books that sell like crazy because their writing is just that good. Those people are out there mm-hmm. and uh, just God bless them is the way I look at it. <laughs> but not everybody has that experience and those who don't, you really got to get out there and shake your tail feathers and, and get yourself in front of people in order for them to even know you exist. Well, that's a, just a quick follow-on from that then, because obviously, um, you know, you have been able to find that balance. And um, as, as Dave mentioned, you, you, you're a major presence on Twitter. And um, so, so how do you find that balance between your writing career and the need to get yourself out there and to basically market yourself? It is an excellent question. Uh, It really comes down to me to automating the things I can automate, but smartly, while still being interactive, and farming out the tasks that I can smartly, while still being interactive. For me, Twitter is such an important tool for my entire publishing career, not just gaining new readers. It's also where I find other authors and and artists and podcasts and, and... it's done amazing things for me. Part of that is because I actually talk to people on Twitter. With that said, I could not in any way, shape, or form keep up the volume of tweeting that I do (laughs) and still get anything written without some level of automation and outsourcing. The automation, basically what it comes down to is I realized a long time ago on Twitter, when I send out a tweet, a small percentage of the people that follow me will see that tweet, depending on the time of day, if they just happen to be watching their feed, something flies by. Unless I specifically mention them, there's no reason that everybody that follows me is going to see that tweet. So I realized I could recycle content. But I also realized that that was a really dangerous avenue if, A, you didn't have enough content, B, it wasn't entertaining content, C, 
if I was saying, read my book, read my book, read my book, I was going to go down the tubes in a hurt. Yeah, so, so you, you don't want to spam. No, exactly. So I had to find this balance. Uh, you know, at the point I still had a day job. And the day job was really beating me up, and I had a hard time. I had to tell everybody, hey, trying to write a novel, trying to do my day job. I'm not going to be on social media for a while. I'll catch you guys later. And people kept saying, hey, where are my bad dragon jokes? And hey, where's my inspirational writing tweets? I really kind of miss you being <laughs> out there. Yeah. And it made me feel good. And I said, well, you know what? I've been, you know, I found a way to export my old tweets and go through and find all the gems. And I built myself a spreadsheet of content that I felt was kind of timeless, and reproducible. And I ended up, now I have 3,000 tweets in a spreadsheet. Oh. Right, okay. So I can schedule those tweets out for a month. For the most part, I'm just looking to have fun with folks and get them to respond. So now that I've got these tweets going out, I'm not having to do it except for writing a few cute things every day to add to it, keep it fresh. I don't repeat myself, well, maybe once every six weeks. (laughs) Okay, that's not so bad, though. Most people don't notice. That, and, you know, even if they do, I, I'm pretty honest with everybody. I say, hey, I, you know, I automate my tweets to, to keep it consistent and give you guys content. And I try to be here twice a day to respond. And we have great conversations. And, and that's kind of been a really important part of my career. It was getting to that point that these interactions and conversations were taking place. And that those automated tweets were generating the replies, and then I reply to everybody who replies to me that I can. That's right. awesome. The social media master. I'm hopeless at social media. <laughs> I should take <laughs> some tips from you. Take you back to the creative process a bit more, Brian, because um, I want to. I, I want to hear more about how you approach things like story and um, uh, character. Take uh, can you, take us back to um, the initial idea that you had for um, for the first book, um, and to sort of take us through um, how you whether you managed to keep the um, the core of your idea and how that had to change throughout the course of your writing. I just wanted to give us a bit more of an idea about the process. Absolutely. Once I discovered reading, I always knew I wanted to tell my own stories. Uh, it took me a while to discover reading. A wrinkle in time. Finally, I enjoyed a book. And I thought, wow, I want more of that. And at that point, I knew I wanted to tell stories. And growing up, I grew up on a, on a horse farm, training racehorses. Uh, my parents divorced, so I kind of had this split life where I lived in an apartment half the time and in this old world lifestyle half the time. It was, it was very bizarre, but it was kind of my own unique experience. So I had a lot to draw from. And as I was working in the technology industry for years, I used to uh, write code at night, right up until I went to bed. And then I would lay there and I'd write code in my sleep and debug code in my sleep all night. And while occasionally productive, it was exhausting. <laughs> and I said, you know, one of these days I'm going to write that story. And why don't I, every night when I lay down, think about those stories. And my dreams have been a whole lot more fun ever since, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> and it started with characters. I just kind of had these ideas about characters that I could relate with. Uh, strong female characters in a lot of senses I thought were missing from from much of the fiction that I read, and I wanted to have a strong female character. But it was kind of my love of mythology that led me into the overall story arc. I love Greek myths. And and I I don't even like to call them myths as much because the people lived their lives by them. They believed them. That was was what governed their lives. So I don't like to downplay 
play it as much uh, uh, to just kind of say, oh, that was their mythology. They believe this stuff, and I had to ask myself, why? What, what was it about this time period where all these magical and, and unexplainable, otherwise unexplainable things were taking place uh, that these, these stories and these gods and these uh, demigods all came into existence, whether through literary or, or oral storytelling and those things. And it occurred to me, I said, well, what if there were just ages of power? What if magic only existed for short periods of time in the world? And then we had these huge droughts for thousands of years where everybody technically forgot about it. And all that was left was legend and myth and mystery. And what if that really happened? Uh, and, and what would it look like when power came back? When after thousands of years of everybody having a mundane existence, all of a sudden these supernatural abilities came back. What else in nature's periodic? Well, comets are periodic. And they can get on these elliptical orbits and go out into deep space for thousands of years and then come back. So I imagined a very large planet drifting close to that Oort cloud and dragging an entire storm of comets, hurling them through space that show up once every 3,000 years to this little planet of Godsland, and for 150 years, their luminescent rains energy into their atmosphere and many of the people who are born in that environment can do things with that energy. So that was the, the genesis of the idea and that overall story arc, uh, kind of what I consider the magical industrial revolution, goes for 12 books. I just finished book nine. I know where I'm going with the last three and I managed to maintain that original story arc through the whole 12 book series, which I'm very excited about. Did you have? Do you have uh, an actual end in mind already? Like you know how it's going to end, and you're building up towards that, or was during the yeah. process of these nine books? I mean, twelve books is a lot. So during the process so far, have you had to change things in order to fit that end, or yeah. have you changed the end? Yes, it, it, it. I knew approximately what happened at the end, but so many things. My characters did things I didn't expect. My stories did things I didn't expect. And serendipitous, it's almost like I had some loose ends in the first six books that I didn't even know why they were there until it all clicked in my head in book seven. Ooh. And I realized why it was that way and how everything just fit, 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 and it all clicked into place. And it was an amazing experience because I didn't plan it that way, and at least not consciously, but it, it all fit together. So it's been a discovery experience while maintaining much of the original concept. Uh, you know, every time I start a book, I'll write a, a short outline, which I then discard and ignore at will. Uh, you know, I love the smell of burning outline in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I get my ideas out there, but then it'll go a completely different direction mid-scene. And, and at first I worried about that, and I just got to the point now, I'm like, hey, if we're going to go somewhere, let's be where this goes. <laughs> and off we go. Uh, it's a lot more fun that way. Had, had you always planned it to be 12 books long, or was this just, it just kept growing At as you went along? At least nine. Right, I okay. planned on nine, and then I realized I couldn't tell the story in nine. Right. Follow on a little bit more from what you were talking about, um, just previously about planning. Um, how important is it when, in terms of the act in terms of construction and structure, do you, you, you say you're a rough outline. Is there, does there come a point where you sit there and go, where you 
uh, in your writing process where you sit and go, okay, now I need to think about this and choreograph this a little bit more minutely? Or, or do you just go with a stream of consciousness? Both. Uh, but I find they're separate processes. When I tried to get it right the first time, I encountered writer's block. Uh, if I sat there and I'd sit there and try and figure out the right way to phrase that sentence to get across what I wanted, I'd sit there and stare at the screen all day. So I gave my per- myself permission to write terrible first drafts. Okay. So yeah. really rough outline. I get the scene. As I'm getting older and, and, and more experienced with this, my process has changed a little bit. My most recent process is I walk around in circles in my living room. I kind of have a big room that I walk around for exercise with a a pad and a pen and I get it so that the scene plays out in my head like a movie Okay. and things will happen that I didn't expect to happen and I'll take a note and I jot everything (laughs) down and then I'll get it all in my head and then I'll walk into my office and type out the scene the funny part is I can leave the pad with all the notes out in the living room because I don't need it once I wrote it down it's stuck but that process of walking in circles and seeing the movie in my head and taking those notes, and then I will a lot of times come back to the scene and look at those notes and think, see if I missed any of the goodies that I want to go back and put in. But that's my second process. Once I've written the whole book, then I let it sit, and I go back and I read it again. A lot of times I'll use text-to-speech to have it read to me. Uh, I like to have it read in a British accent so it sounds like somebody else wrote it. That way it's just awful. <laughs> and it sounds so much classier when it's said in a British accent as well. It really, it just, everything sounds classier. You know, I, I could have Donald Trump read it. You know, it's just big, it's classy. But, you know, uh, the, the British accent works. I, I, I've had a lot of luck with that. So, yeah, really, I find like editing is a, is a completely different process. And there's that content and flow and plot editing. And what I've learned most recently is more of the mechanics of writing, editing. Um, my editor, Andrea Howe, um, recommended a book to me called The 10% Solution um, by Ken Rand. And, it, you know, some of it, a lot of it's common sense stuff um, that you'll figure out on your own if you write long enough. But the way that he put it, uh, it, it got me to really structure my editing. So instead of just reading through the manuscript and looking for things that aren't good, uh, I started looking for signs of bad writing by searching for the word that or of or ly or was, were. There's just certain words that when they're in a sentence, there's about an 80% chance you did it wrong. Yeah. yeah. And when you go through and you just find them and all you're doing is looking at a sentence, it's a completely different editing experience. Now I'm just, now I'm just crafting the perfect sentence. Yeah. Later, I'll come back and realize when I read the paragraph, it's not good. So I have to now, when I finish that, I've got to go through and, and, and have, you know, the, the Brits read it to me again. <laughs> and then, after all that, I send it to my editor. And she in, enlightens me on all the things I missed. Right. Uh, but it's a really, it's a wonderful process. It can be stressful working with an editor, but... When you're done and you've learned and you can read it aloud and it flows and it does those things you wanted it to do, it, it's it's a cool experience. And do you give it out to test readers as well, like friends and family? I do. I didn't have them at first. I you know I kind of have my friends and family, but most of my family aren't really fantasy readers. Yeah. Um, so my books didn't necessarily 
hit all the notes that they would have liked in a book. So I wanted real fantasy readers to, to kind of get that um, perspective. And I was very fortunate about a year and a half ago uh, to have someone create a fan group for my books on Facebook. Um, there's a couple hundred folks that have, have kind of filtered in there between me shouting about it on Twitter and uh, folks just kind of wandering their way in on their own. And, and a number of them came, I believe, from, from Terry Goodkind's fan uh, group, which I, I'm involved with as well because I'm a fan of his work. So... Those folks now, I'll offer beta reads, yeah. proofreads, advanced reader copies, uh, depending on where I am in the developmental process and what I need. Um, it's been really great to interact with my own fans uh, and folks that feel strongly about my books and give them the opportunity to be part of the creative process. You know, it, the Twitter thing I said is about communication and relationships. Facebook is the same way. And there's not much better relationship you can build with a reader than saying, I value your opinion. Exactly. Mm. Uh, Brian, I just wanted to, if you could talk a little bit about world building as well. I mean, talking about your initial idea um, earlier on and the things that got you into... Uh, inspiration. In the inspiration. But then going from that into uh, the construction of your world and um, then seeing how your character started to shape, be shaped or was shaped or shape that world specifically? Uh, one of the things that was neatest about me for world building is, you know, I, I'm, I'm a scientific-minded person, uh, so as much as I love fantasy, there were some things in, in fantasy novels that I read that, that stretched credulity, uh, and, and, you know, I, I kind of like to know if there's some energy being expelled, you know, where it came from. Uh, so having that power source, uh, that kind of drives my world, and, and the fact that it was variable, uh, the fact that initially when the comet storm shows up, it's just one comet, you know, which I call the Herald. Uh, it's the one to tell you, hey, the rest are coming. Uh, but then it's two or three at a time, four or five. When it gets to the height of power halfway through uh, the, the, the age of power, there are thousands of comets in the skies and they blot out the stars and even the moon has trouble competing and there's no more nighttime because it's, it's like a full moon times 10 every night. Uh, so, you know, it really, I had this story arc where the world itself and that comet storm were characters and they were constantly changing my setting. And I love that part about it because the world continued to develop um, I mentioned the magical industrial revolution. I kind of thought about you know, what would happen if, if we knew that electricity would stop working in 100 years. What would we do? Mm. And that was part of this magical revolution. Is okay, they've got this power source, but they know it's going away. Mm. So how would you develop your civilization knowing that what you're building it upon is temporary? Is and it? because of that, I just plugged my characters into it and saw what they did. Yeah. So, and you mentioned so your your main your, your main protagonist is is a girl. Um, so yeah. she's she's a young girl who uh, sort of get, you know comes into her powers. Catherine, yeah. Catherine, yeah. Um, so, so, how do you um, how do you find sort of writing a, a female character? Because I mean, judging from your from your voice and Skype picture, you're not a girl. <laughs> indeed, indeed. It, it was actually pretty easy for me because I was surrounded by really strong women in my life. Hmm. Um, you know, my mom is one of the strongest people I've ever met. She's a cancer survivor. It's just unbelievable what she went through and what she's done in her life. Uh, my grandmother, for example, you know, we were in the horse racing business, and, and they went over to the racetrack one night, and the guy who drove the starting gate, I don't know if you've ever seen a standard 
race where they've got a car with a big gate on it that yeah. takes yeah. off at 30 miles an hour to uh, to let the horses go to start the race rather than a standing start. And my grandmother said, well, no problem. I'll drive that starting gate. And, and that's just the kind of <laughs> women I was around that just took the bull by the horns and, and made it happen. And there's a scene in one of my books where there's a horse that nobody can catch and he's out in a big field. Uh, and his halter uh, is, is a yearling halter, and if they leave it on him, it's going to destroy him because his flesh is going to grow over it. So they have to catch him, and, and they're about to shoot him with an arrow to catch this horse. And Katrin goes out and, and sits in the field and picks flowers and ignores the horse, and the horse can't stand it. <laughs> he has to know what she's doing, and eventually sticks his head in her lap, and, and she catches him. And that is based on something that my mother did, showing up my dad and my uncle and my grandfather, who had all failed to catch this horse. So <laughs> awesome. I had a, lot, a deep well to draw from on that nice. regard. Uh, all right, well, so we'll finish off, uh, finish off with my, uh, my last question. Uh, so we, I mean, on the, like I mentioned at the start, we review books, and, uh, and we all have sort of varying degrees of writing, you know, uh, professionally and, you know, and privately as well and stuff like that. And so, and, and during our review process, we sort of, the reviews are not always good. I mean, we're, we're as truthful as we possibly can be. And, and so so basically what I wanted to ask of you is, is how you were saying about how at the, at the beginning you weren't very good. And so you got me sort of saw these sort of things yourself and you sort of, you got better as you went along. And, and, you know, I've read, I've read some you know, good reads. I've been on, you know, good reads and, you know, read reviews and stuff like that. And, and uh, so I, I guess uh, my question is, how do you sort of take on board the review process? One of the easiest ways to remove the desire to write is to read all of your reviews. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, depending on how successful that, that book is, I find that one-star one review has a tendency to outweigh 55-star reviews in the mind of the writer. Right. Uh, they hear the criticism more sharply. With that said, there are some one-star reviews that I look at and think, well, that just doesn't make any sense, and I'm going to completely ignore that. Yeah. <laughs> there are others I look at and say, okay, well, they had some solid points. It still stings. I don't like hearing that people didn't like that about my books. Right. But I can see where they're coming from. My primary, you know, once I hear the same thing more than once, book one starts too slowly, well, then I realize I've got a real problem, and I need to go back and look at it, and they're right. You know, I could use, it would help me a lot if the very first book in the series was not my worst writing. But it is, and I've realized that over time. Uh, I've gotten better, and therefore my initial outing was the weakest of the bunch. Right. So that has not helped me uh, going along, but fortunately the story is there. Uh, you know, 80% of readers get past the weakness in the writing and enjoy the story. That makes me feel a lot better. It's helped me move forward. So I've had to balance between looking for the real truth in those reviews to see what was wrong, what was it that was turning people off, was I put it in front of the wrong audience. You know, sometimes you'll get, hey, the characters are two-dimensional, right next to a review that says, I love the character development. Yeah. You know, sometimes <laughs> just feedback is feedback. But when they all start saying the same thing, pay attention, take a lesson from it, soothe your ego, learn, go back, write again, do better. Uh, that's kind of been my, my methodology, but, uh, it, it definitely is nicer to get those good reviews. Um, it feels good to have a four plus star rated book, but I tell you, I still have trouble reading all those one star reviews. 
Yeah, that's, that's fair enough. <laughs> I'm really glad you asked that question because that's something that I was wondering about. Because a lot of a lot of times people don't feel moved to write anything unless it's a negative. Yeah, they feel strong, strong, more strongly motivated by a negative response than a positive response. Yeah, and, it's, and I just don't understand why, why. What's the point of that? I mean, what, what, it's just it human nature. Serve, I, it doesn't I, serve anything. It's just human nature. Yeah. I think you yeah. feel more. You want to express your outrage more than you want to express your pleasure. And I don't know why that is. But but the, but the main thing that I did, I did see from the reviews is, and uh, and I just sort of see, I mean, from talking to you now and sort of from your Twitter and, and sort of interacting with you is. Is that is yeah that you take I mean you take on board what people say but you're not slavish to it you know what I mean you don't you just yeah. like oh well it's it's, well, it's you know it's my story and it's my world and I'm going to do what I want and and the one one thing that I I mean as uh, whenever we uh, Luke and myself review books one of, one of our major thing that we love the most is the story in the world mm. and all of your reviews even the you know the oneers the one stars all say that the story is excellent and that's you know that's something to to sort of embrace, I think. I think it's wonderful. It is, and, and you know, constructive criticism is not always a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, an American editor who reviewed my book gave it what I can only call a mediocre review, yeah. uh, three stars, and, and I believe his comment was, I'm glad I didn't pay more for it. It wasn't a great review, but my sales spiked for three months after that. <laughs> so the exposure, you know, they say not all, you know, uh, not all bad publicity is bad publicity, but, uh, you know, sometimes getting yourself the exposure is worth taking it on the chin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, that's uh, so. We'll finish up there. Is have, have, have you got any? Uh, I mean, like like I said, your Twitter feed is uh, is, is magnificent. So, have you, have you got any sort of just like top nuggets of advice for aspiring writers? I would say, with regards to Twitter, I've had so much success there. The reason that I gravitate to Twitter uh, is because it makes it so easy for, for me to find people who will like my books. And I'll give you a perfect example of how I did that. I wanted to find people that I could reach out to and have a conversation with, but that there was a good chance they would be fans of my work. So I thought of all the different authors uh, who are similar to me, and I went out and found those that were on Twitter. And if you look at the people who are following those authors, they are in, generally, in general that author's fan base. Yeah. And so it really compartmentalizes people and allows you to just go find birds of a feather, find people who like silly dragon jokes and (laughs) engage with them. And I've managed to find this enormous community of writers, readers, geeks, nerds, podcasters, and people who just like you don't mind my general silliness and and goofiness and find it amusing and, and, and get something out of it. I haven't been able to do that anywhere else. So... For anybody who writes fantasy or speculative fiction, if you're looking for your audience, go to twitter.com slash Brian Rathbone slash following, and you will find 80,000 people that I think are cool. (laughs) (laughs) I I do need to point out, including us. (laughs) (laughs) Including you, that's right. (laughs) That's one of the things. I mean, if it wasn't for Twitter, we would not be having this conversation. So I think it's very appropriate that my advice is go out, get on Twitter, and start reaching out and following people who like the same thing as you do, and talk with them. Yeah. Uh, tell them a joke. See what happens. That was that was awesome, Brian. Thank you very very much for uh, partaking of that. It was uh, a lot of fun and, and very informative. I thought really really yep, cool. Definitely. I'm inspired to. Uh, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, it's funny how in my brain works. I'm inspired to start writing now, so I will. Mm. I'll get a couple of chapters down, and then World of Warcraft will 
lure me away. <laughs> Life Warcraft's your salvation or the bane of your existence. I did have to give up gaming. Oh my god, no, don't say that. I had to give up gaming. No, the discussion's over. That's it. I'm ending up here. Right, David, right. Something's got to go. Something's got to go. And it's not Warcraft. And it's not me. <laughs> no, I tried to combine the two, actually. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an avid World of Warcraft player. And so what I did was I created character bios for the for the characters that I play so I got to do some writing and uh, sort of combine it too it's not quite the same though <laughs> not quite to the level it's not that you achieved thing. and and even though for me gaming was an addiction uh, I was an online racer and I used to spend a lot of time gaming when Diablo 3 came out I refused to even look at it because I thought oh god I'll get sucked in oh, and that'll wise be it. Man. Um, wise. but I interviewed Mercedes Lackey uh, a couple of years ago, and we talked about the fact that some of the novels that she's written that are very popular and very successful came out of gaming sessions and co-writing things, uh, working interactively through video games. So, you know, it can be done, and it can be done well by people I respect a lot. So just because I gave up video games doesn't mean you have to to write it. Uh, sometimes you can use it as a tool, but... Uh, I, I had to step away from the steering wheel. <laughs> <laughs> let's face it, I'd have to do the same thing. Um, all right, well, let's uh, let's move on to our top five, which Ryan will be partaking of, which I'm very excited about. And so, ladies first, and start nice. with Crystal. Oh, okay. Well, mine. Oh wait, sorry, sorry. I'm just, sorry, I should probably introduce it. So, our top five uh, topic. Sorry about that. <laughs> just to cut you off, uh, is our, our top five fantasy characters from either film or book. Okay, so my number number five position number five position took a little while for me to um, to choose because I didn't want to choose another character from that same author, but then I couldn't stop thinking about this character, and so I've chosen Granny Weatherwax from the Discworld novels by Terry Pratchett, and um, the reason I couldn't stop thinking about Granny Weatherwax is because I've in my head I may she's like if you took the character House as played by Hugh Laurie, and put him in the Discworld and turned him into a female witch. <laughs> That's Granny Weatherwax. Fair enough. She's very acerbic. She's not a very nice person, but she's got a good heart, and uh, she has a, a lot of great one-liners. Okay. okay. Number four, coming away from the written word and onto the screen, is Jareth from The Labyrinth. <laughs> Played by the awesome David Bowie And his cod piece <laughs> I was going to mention his cod piece it's actually, There's no cod piece there It's just tight pants and what he's packing underneath That's all Bowie I don't want to take anything away Bowie. from the Bowie It's just just an amazing character And 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 I think What boots that, that What pops him into my list is is the songs <laughs> <laughs> And reminds you of the babe yeah. yeah exactly If David Bowie wasn't awesome enough It's got David Bowie's music as well <laughs> Fair enough Good choice. Okay my number third is a, a, Another Terry Pratchett character Death Awesome okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it, Most other places Where you find de- death referred to You've got the, the cow And the scythe And his skeleton Which is what you find on this world as well. <laughs> However, death has a bit more of character. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's got a, well, he hasn't physically got a heart because he's a, a <laughs> metaphysical being <laughs> but he's, and he's a skeleton, but he's got a bit more of a heart and, and um, the way he interacts with the humans, not quite understanding them, but um, at the same time trying to help, even though he is death. 
Yeah. And the way he eases people into the other world <laughs> is just probably one of my all-time favourite characters. But he is pipped at the post by Commander Vimes, who is also a Terry Pratchett character. <laughs> Good old Commander Vimes. <laughs> um, I've talked about him before, I think, in our favourite yeah. heroes or yeah, something. Yeah, as our I heroes. Oh, yeah. So I won't go into great detail here. And my number one all-time fantasy character... Um, I just had to choose. I wasn't going to because I, was, I wanted to choose somebody we hadn't talked about before. But if I have to be honest, my all-time favourite fantasy character is Samwise Gamgee from Lord of the Rings. Yay! The real hero the of the The real hero of Lord, Lord of the Rings. Of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. I just Samwise. Yeah. What a legend. <laughs> cool. Good list. All right, well, so now we can move on to our special guest, Brian. Well, I, I didn't want to, uh, when I, I did my list, I didn't want to use anything that had recently come out in film because they're just so vivid in our minds from, from seeing these, these wonderful fantasy films that have been put out. So mine are a little more old school. Uh, number five, I had to come in with Raceland Magere. Uh, you just can't say the name Raceland without inciting some sort of a response from, from geeks and nerds and you, you can't actually see it, but um, you actually just got that reaction from Dave. It's like fists in the air. He's celebrating the fact that you've chosen this character. And you'll understand why when you get to my list. <laughs> so, uh, number five, uh, Theonet from The Dragon Prince. Um, Melanie Rowan is one of my big inspirations. It's one of the characters I really related with. I, I love that strong female character from that series. It was an inspiration for, for part of my series. So I had to go with seeing it from the Dragon Prince. Cool. Number three, I went with the anti-hero, uh, Thomas Covenant. Ooh. <laughs> he had a <laughs> big impact on my life. Uh, it, it, some love to hate him. Yeah. Uh, but I will say my wedding ring is of white gold, just in case. Uh, <laughs> And I don't know if you guys have read that series, but yeah. every time I see it, it's a popular uh, pop culture thing now when somebody's eating something to, to type nom, nom, nom. Yeah. Uh, and every time I see that, I think, oh, my goodness, these people are so brave, they don't know they're going to get beaten to death by a sand gorgon. <laughs> <laughs> just one of those things. That, <laughs> that is old school nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I really had to pull that one out. Uh, and I'm going old school all the way. Uh, number two, Belgarath the Sorcerer, uh, the, the cranky sorcerer who was always up to something. I, I love that character. Awesome. Uh, big fan of David Eddings' books. I, I went back and tried to reread them, and they weren't quite as toast to my heart as when I read them as a teenager, but nonetheless, cool. he uh, I love those books. And my number one most memorable fantasy character of all time, I have to return back to the Dragonlance series, uh, Tracy Hickman, Margaret White, the Tasselhoff Burfoot. Yay! I need Tasselhoff, the greatest Kenda ever. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> what a legend! I, I just—it's the, the character. If you ask me to, to pick the most memorable uh, fantasy character from all of my reading, uh, you know, I can picture Tasselhoff, and, and you know, I can remember just about being in tears when uh, when he encountered a trap that uh, I didn't think he was going to make it back from. So. That, that is my top five, and uh, what a cool top five experience. I enjoyed that. <laughs> it was awesome. a good, It was an excellent list if I do say so myself, <laughs> because we're going to do the mine now. <laughs> <laughs> you, you were saying at the start of the show that you wanted to match the similarities between the two of you, and it's clearly, pretty, clearly from your reaction <laughs> to everything Brian was saying, there's quite a few on it's this It's pretty list. close, so let's, let's go to it. Uh, number five, I've got uh, Indigo Montoya. 
Yeah. You, killed, you killed my father. Prepare to die. <laughs> what a legend. <laughs> <laughs> One of the greatest swordsmen ever. Just a, such a in nice his... man. He looks awesome. As, as portrayed by Mandy Patinkin. That's yes, right. Just because I love to say and Patinkin. Patinkin. <laughs> and, and involved in what I consider to be the second greatest sword fight ever to be put on well, film. Well, it's funny you say that because I think it's the greatest sword fight ever put yeah. on film. So oh, I, 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 I give the edge to, um, to Errol Flynn and Basil Rathbone in The Adventures yeah, of Robin Hood. Yeah, it's no, that's because the adventures of Robin Hood is awesome. No, no, the, se- the second greatest sword fight is uh, the court jester. Which would be on my <laughs> list as well, but in fact, just any sword fight involving Basil Rathbone is usually awesome. That's true, although there's the connection. Yeah, it all comes circle. Yeah. Uh, so that's, yes, that's my number five. So number four is uh, Silk from the David Eddy series, the Belgarian and the, and the Malorian, uh, otherwise known as Prince Calder. Silk is... Uh, the world's greatest thief, and uh, and funnily enough, as it moves on, the greatest businessman, <laughs> which is basically a thief. Which mm. sort of yes, but you know, it's always the way that he goes about doing things. You know, with strange little offsides and things. He could be talking to you completely and having a separate conversation with his fingers. Yeah, exactly right. With the, yeah, the talking, the sign language of the fingers, brilliant. So yeah, silk, absolutely brilliant stuff. Uh, number three, I've got Waylander, who is a uh, David Gemmell um, character. Is basically just. I don't know. He's, he's a fighter, rogue, thief, you know, sort of stuff. But what I really love about him is his uh, his personality and his tortured psych and he does why he does what he does and sort of the, the journey that he goes on. Um, big big fan of the David Gemmell type stuff. Uh, back to Eddings for number two with Sparhawk, the greatest of the Pandian Knights. Uh, I, I I mean, like Brian, I'm a massive David Eddings fan, which is one of the reasons why, why I was actually drawn to Brian because it actually says in his and he's a about me bio thing, <laughs> David Eddings fan. Uh, so I sort of went from there. But uh, Sparhawk, he's pretty generic in in the fact that he, you know, he's actually he's a fighter, warrior type stuff. But the 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 love that I have for the Elenium and the Tamuli series uh, is basically is all is epitome in in it's like in him as a character and and so in his journey and and his character and and uh, what he does and you know all that sort of stuff. And plus, he looks awesome. So yeah, he's cool. <laughs> Uh, I'm related with his horse. His horse, uh, I'm pretty sure I worked with his horse a couple times. <laughs> uh, his horse, Ferran? <laughs> yeah, what a legend. Yes, indeed, indeed. I've got the scars to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> I just love how it's like every single time Ferran's on, uh, on screen, well, I say on screen, but in, in the page, it, it's, it's always accompanied with a warning. It's like, did you warn the porter? Did you warn the stable <laughs> boy? And it's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Be nice, Ferran. I had a horse I worked with one time uh, at the racetrack, ate a guy's shirt before the race. <laughs> <laughs> I chewed it up, swallowed it, went out and finished second. So I, I'm, I'm, I felt very close to that horse. <laughs> awesome. And so the, the, the reason for my reaction before, number one, is Raceland. Raceland is, I, I mean, well, he's number one, so obviously he's my favorite character, but he's just, he's just, he's, his journey and uh, his character is just is it's unbelievably real to me, and the fact that he came from, which I think is brilliant, but he actually came from uh, them playing Dungeons and Dragons, so they were play testing Dungeons and Dragons and play testing this new world scenario, Dragonlance, and the character that uh, I can't remember who was actually playing Raceland, but uh, so the character was playing Raceland, sort, of, sort of created such a what I such a, a robust and 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 real character, and, uh, and then was translated into the books themselves. I've got a question for you. When I, I had to, for time reasons, I had to do the banner in advance this time and I was going to put Raceland on the banner. Um, when I was searching for images, someone at DeviantArt has done Tom Hiddleston as Raceland. What do you think? Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> that would work. Yeah. That would work. 
Um, yeah, so wrestling is, I mean, he's, he's not quite a good guy, not quite a bad guy, and, it, and well, let's face it, he's probably a bad guy. And, you know, just and just how he looks and just it's the whole journey that he goes through is just is, is magnificent, and uh, that's why he's number one. I, I got the opportunity to meet Tracy Hickman at Dragon Con this year and tell him just how much those characters meant to me, and it was, uh, it was an interesting full circle moment to have gone from reading those books as a kid and, and being inspired by them and going somewhere as a writer and, and meeting him and talking with him. Uh, really cool stuff. That's brilliant. Awesome. That would be awesome. Cool. Okay, my um, my number five is Tarzan. Edgar Rice Burroughs. And I'm talking specifically Edgar Rice Burroughs' um, <laughs> creation here rather than... Not the Johnny Weissmuller. Not, not the Hollywood I, version. Don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan of the Johnny Weissmuller Tarzans. Watched them religiously as a kid. Yeah. Um, have, you know, the, the Weissmuller, O'Sullivan... Tarzan's in my DVD collection, um, but specifically Edgar Rice Burroughs' um, educated uh, noble savage, the, the self-taught um, uh, survivalist, I guess. Also, you know, the the, the Africa that he um, inhabits is vastly different to the you know to real Africa. You know, he's a it's a much more stylized, overtly elaborate um, jungle world as opposed to you know the lush savannas that. Most people associate with Africa these days. So Tarzan is my number five. Cool. Uh, my number four um, is, well, let's see, how, how should I start this? My number four um, it has been called Sun Wukong, or if anyone calls him Son Goku and decides to compare him to, drag, to the character in Dragon Ball, I will get annoyed. Um, I'm talking about Monkey from Monkey Magic and from Journey to the West by Wang Qian. Um, what, what is the nature of Monkey? Irrepressible. <laughs> <laughs> I say that every day. He gets randomly at yep. work. Irrepressible. Um, <laughs> uh, just the the the, the tricks to nature, uh, the awesome fighter, the magic. You know, he should be an evil character, but he's not. He's quite like actually quite likable and quite nice, and it, it starts to actually develop a, a friendship with Trippy Tarka and particularly Pigsy, particularly yeah. in the in the '70s TV show. He and Pigsy actually get on quite well, and Monkey takes quite delight in playing childish pranks on his friend, um, and it's just quite fun to watch. Um, but big fan of the character as a kid, and I you know have you know read the read the the translated version of the of the, the of the book. I've seen other versions of the character as well, and you know he's always been a favourite of mine. Um, so um, that's number that, monkey is number four. Number three is we can debate about whether it's fantasy or science fiction, but number three is Luke Skywalker. Um, for it's a space all, fantasy. For all its for so all its cool science, for all its science fiction <laughs> aesthetic and trappings, you know it is the story of a boy wizard attempting to go out, or a boy king attempting to you know go out and learn his powers and overcome an evil wizard. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a 101 on how to do the yeah, hero's journey. It, yeah, it's um, uh, and for the most part, you know, he has a magic sword, he has magic powers. He, he is a fantasy hero, and he's one of those characters who, you know, we all, we all might want to wish with it, that we're Han Solo, but really, we all sort of really more identify with Luke and Luke's journey hmm. more than anything else. And I would know. want to look like Han Solo, hmm. but be Luke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, have hey, Luke's abilities. Don't mess with the princess. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's my uh, my number f- my number three. My number my number two um, has to be a Lord of the Rings character. Of course, it does. Um, and I'm just going to like just watch your faces for a sec because I know that two of you, <laughs> one of you, thinks he knows exactly what I'm about to no, say. No, He's about to be surprised. I don't think you're going to say Aragorn. Um, okay, fine then. Um, my number two is Gollum. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, cool. Uh, Aragorn is my favorite character, but 
in terms of actual, in terms of if I'm going for the really good characters in Lord of the Rings, you've got to go with Gollum. The dichotomy of his character, the duality, the struggle that um, is inherent in the character as well, and then the the burden that he places on Frodo himself and the um, the antagonism that he that he develops with Frodo towards the end of the story yeah. um, makes him a fascinating character to read and quite a sympathetic one too. Right. Um, so he had to. He, he has always been in the books, in the radio version, in um, the film. He has always been the standout. Um, so I go with Gollum. Cool. Um, and my number one is one of my beloved heroes, um, a char- character who I've been a fan of since childhood, um, and it's Robin Hood. And specifically Robin Hood from my favourite version, which is uh, the more fantastical version anyway, which is the uh, early to mid-80s um, TV show Robin of Sherwood. Cool. Um, and to, to clarify that for those who don't know who Ro- Robin of Sherwood is, Robin of Sherwood was an attempt to sort of place Robin Hood back into sort of the Celtic mythology. Yeah. Um, as opposed to just being a, a, ro- a noble rogue, robbing from the rich and stealing the poor. You know, in this version, he is... Um, uh, the son of a peasant who is actually adopted by Hearn the Hunter, hmm. um, a spirit of the a spirit of the forest, um, to uh, cho- kind of a chosen one to go and um, fight against oppression. And he's got a magic sword. He has magic a magic talisman. He fights against um, uh, sorcerers on occasions. At one point, he picks up his sword to fight Lucifer, of all people. And it's, you said the guy, it's a bizarre moment. You said the guy, but man, I've got some respect for you for actually having the courage to stand up and do that. <laughs> um, loved the series when I was a kid. Have always loved Robin Hood and many of his incarnations, and that's my particular favourite. So, yeah, Robin Hood is my number one. Nice. All right. Um, I've got to say, this was the absolute hardest top five list for me to do to date. As um, not a fan of fantasy. Yeah, as, as I said, I'm not, I'm not a big fantasy reader. Um, sorry, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, quite all right, quite all right. Look, look I'll, I'll be honest, I have no idea who half the characters you guys mentioned <laughs> even are. Um, you know, I, I know of the series because we've talked, to, you've talked about them in the past, but seriously, no idea who these characters were. So, th- this was a very difficult list for me to do. Um, but I did manage to get five in the end. Um, okay, my number five character, and this is based purely on the TV series because I haven't read the books, is um, Tyrion Lannister. Cool. Um, in a show with a, with a, just a, a, an array of great characters, he is the one character above all others that just stands out, and you just you just hang out for each and every scene that uh, he appears in. Beautifully played by Peter Dinklage, and um, friends have told me the friends that have read the Song of Ice and Fire books have told me that he is equally as good um, in the books as he is on the TV show, perhaps even better. So. I feel comfortable I, including him. And I, I, I'd be willing to say, because I have, I'm willing to say at, at least to the equal. Yeah. Like, brought to life by Peter Nice. Um, my number four character um, is actually a comic book character, because I may not be a big fantasy reader, but I do love my comics. Um, and that's actually Morpheus from the Sandman series by Neil Gaiman. Nice work. There was a point in the 90s where I was seriously thinking of just stopping reading comics entirely because there were some terrible, terrible things <laughs> happening. Um, there were a few key series came along, um, things like um, uh, Bone and Starman, and, um, but especially Vertigo came along and pretty much saved my comic reading. <laughs> 
And at the forefront of all of that was the Sandman. Um, and Morpheus is an amazing character and the, the sheer mythology created around him, the idea of the dreaming, the, the combination of so many different mythologies brought into Morpheus and, and Morpheus's role in all of those mythologies, um, to me, just makes him an amazing character. And, and the Sandman series is something that I go back to read probably uh, once a year. Um, so it still has that impact, what, 20 years later on. Especially, especially the issue with the uh, the serial killers. <laughs> uh, the serial <laughs> killers is fantastic. Oh, but, that's um, great. The, the, st- uh, the, the story that I love the most is actually um, when, when he receives the key from Lucifer. Yeah, that, that, of course. <laughs> for hell. Yeah, um, it is the standard. Yeah. And, um, of course, that series is naturally then spawned, you know, a great many spin-off series as well, including the Lucifer series, <laughs> which I've just recently read, and uh, that is fantastic. Um, so that's my number four character. Um my number three character, I've actually doubled up with Luke on this one, is Monkey, uh, from the Monkey Magic Monkey TV Magic. series, and from the, the original Monkey translated Magic. stories, but um, for pretty Magic. much all the reasons Luke said, but also, um, what I love about Monkey is actually his journey to enlightenment, Yeah, um, and, and how he becomes an enlightened being, uh, which I think is just, just amazing. It's, it's, it's a really just a fantastic example of how to do the hero's journey correctly. Um, so that's my number three character. That's how you even call the journey. Journey to the West. Exactly. <laughs> okay, my number two character, um, this is a bit of a weird one because I haven't narrowed it down to one specific depiction of the character. But if you really wanted to pick one, I would say probably the movie Excalibur. But my number two character is Merlin. Like the, my love of... But not the TV show version, surely. No, no, no. Like I said, let's use Excalibur. Uh, yeah, because, use Excalibur. Yeah. But more importantly, <laughs> it's it's Merlin as a character and as a concept and as he's appeared in multiple things. But uh, most importantly, like Greek, like the Greek mythology, I, I grew up on Arthurian legend as well. And it's an, I love the, the entire mythology of Arthur and Camelot. And, but the character that really stands out in all of that is Merlin and the manipulations of Merlin and the way he controls everything and then how he then loses control himself of everything that's going on and how that then, um, I think, is reflective of Arthur's story. Um, now, yes, there have been some god-awful depictions of him over the years as well. Um, but I do love the movie Excalibur, so let's use that one as an example. But what I'm, what I'm looking at here more, you know, more importantly is... Um, Merlin, as presented in um, in the classic um, Arthurian legends, cool, um, and you know the classic poetry and um, epics of the past. So that's my number two character, um, and my number one final character. Um, it, this dates back to the fact that um, whilst I don't like a lot of fantasy, I have read just about every story that this character has been in, novel wise, um, but also comics and seen all the movies much to my chagrin in most cases, but that's Conan. Um, I absolutely love the character of Conan. Um, Lamentations of the women. <laughs> I, I love the idea of, once again, you're talking about the noble savage character, but um, what I love about this is that um, he he spends a lot of his time unwittingly uncovering the hypocrisies of supposed culture and society. And what um, whilst he is seen as the savage in his stories by those around him, he is actually the most noble of characters. Um, and he, yeah, as I said, he does unearth that hypocrisy, plus just a, a great character in general. And um, I just love those moments where he goes berserk and starts <laughs> killing people. But but he's, he's cunning, he's clever, he's witty, he's smarter than, than he might first seem to those around him. Um, and yeah, I, I just love the Conan stories. I think they're cool. absolutely amazing. So that's my top five. All good lists. Very cool. Uh, so we'll just uh, finish quickly finish up with coming soon and uh, say our goodbyes. 
In Australian cinemas, February 5th, uh, we get Big Eyes, which is the story of Margaret Keane, artist Margaret Keane. Mm. Um, okay, could be interesting. It's Tim Burton. Tim Burton, yep. So, that'll be good. Uh, Kinsman, Secret Service, which is Mark Miller's latest big screen outing, which actually, I'm not ashamed to say, actually looks pretty cool. It actually looks like it might be fun. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Well, we'll fingers crossed that they'll overcome... You know the oh the comics terrible yeah they'll overcome the weaknesses <laughs> of Mark Miller's writing and actually produce something good <laughs> no but but actually but the trailers all look hilarious so uh, and well the movie's called Me Myself and Mum but for some reason I've written down Mew Myself and Mum <laughs> so no it's not the latest Pokemon film <laughs> I was about to say hang on so we've got someone travelling to the ancient land of Moo <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't know it's, it's been it's Me Myself and Mum which is a a play that's been translated to the stage uh, about a guy who is gay and uh, his mum didn't know how to handle it and so she dressed him up in dresses and pretended he was a girl I don't, I don't know it sounds, That's the, the brief description that I read I was like well I'm going to see this it's, it's awesome <laughs> um, and uh, Marky Mark has decided to remake The Gambler of all things does and he know when to hold him and when to fold him not and that when to one. walk away and when to run no no it's the James <laughs> Carr version yeah yes yeah, so it's been remade for no apparent reason although he could do a good Kenny he could. He could. <laughs> I like Mikey Mark, but from, I don't know. Really, I don't, from, yeah, the previews, from, from the previews I've, I've seen, um, it looks like he's going to be, much like, say, the fighter, he's going yeah. to be completely overshadowed by the supporting cast. Um, yeah. There's a scene with him and John Goodman, and John Goodman just dominates the screen, as John Goodman as always he does. does. He can get you a toe. <laughs> yeah, and, and Marky Mark just, just looks like he's there, like he's just <laughs> he's there just in the background, you know. And Looking so, free. Yeah, so that, that could be a real problem for that film. Well, that's it for episode 128. Uh, just once again, I just want to say just a very special thank you to uh, Brian for being on the show and, and giving us your your thoughts and experiences and pearls of wisdom. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much. It has been a pleasure. I thank you very much for having me on, and I've enjoyed the conversation immensely. Awesome. Thank yeah, you very so. much for being a part of it and uh, joining in on the top fives. There's some excellent choices, if I do say so myself. <laughs> <laughs> and you do. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, just uh, just keep up uh, the good work, Brian. It's, it's um, I, I love what you do, and and uh, I, I, just, I really I really appreciate you taking your time, uh, not only with us today, but with also with your fans, you know, like like we said on the Twitter and stuff like that. And and uh, I'll keep following you, and you keep uh, giving us the bad dragon jokes, and we'll be cool. Sounds great, and uh, I'd love to come back sometime. I really appreciate it. This has been a blast. That'd be awesome. <laughs> cool. Thank you, Brian. You have a, you have a good night. Good night, everybody. Uh, take care. Bye. 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 So, that was, uh, so that was Brian, and that's it from us from the crew. I'm part of the crew. You are, unfortunately, you are, yes. <laughs> Luke. Yeah, I kind of dip in and out here. You're part of the crew as well. Just accept it. <laughs> you're physically here, but you're mentally you sort of dip in. I'm in several different spaces. Remember, remember, we're a team, and we get nowhere unless the team succeeds. Team has me in it, so yeah. you know, if I take me out, it's just... Ha. Hey, Crystal. It has to be said. Oh, Pixie. <laughs> <laughs> now, see, the, the, there's a problem with that. You know what the problem is? He never says it. No, 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 no. Oh, your mouth, your mouth, and the words actually move at the same speed. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye now. You've been listening to Nerd Culture Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email to feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com. You can run on our wall if you go to the Facebook page. Go to facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast. Tweet us at nerdculturecast. Skype us on nerdculturepodcast. If we don't answer, leave a message. We might even play it on the show. You can comment on any post on our website. www.nerdculturepodcast.com If you'd like to support the show, 
Use the Amazon affiliate widget on our website to do your Amazon shopping. It doesn't cost you any extra, and a small percentage of the profit goes towards helping us to produce our show. We can see what you buy, but not who you are, so your privacy is assured. Check out our videos at ncptv.net or search for NCPTV on YouTube because we also have a YouTube channel. Don't forget, you can rate, review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Wondering where you can hear more of Bo? Go to ecnradio.com. Bo and David also have another podcast called Film Flames. More info at www.filmflames.com. You can find all of our podcasts and more at undercastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more episodes.